How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, which means uh, make sure that you're in fellowship. Use First John 1, nine if necessary. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we can be here this evening to study your word. What a tremendous privilege it is for us to study your word, to be to have our own Bibles in front of us, our own copy that can rest in our lap, that we can read, that we can take with us wherever we go. And we have uh, what a tremendous privilege we ha- it is that we have access to so much sound biblical teaching uh, today. And Father, we pray that we might not take this for granted, but that we might recognize what a privilege it is and that it might spur us on to an even greater uh, study, greater desire to know you and to know your truth. Father, we pray tonight as we study your word that we might come to understand grace a little better, we might come to understand our salvation a little better, and that above all we might come to understand how magnificent your grace is in terms of your plan of salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Now last time as we were working our way through the first couple of chapters of Romans, we got down to about Romans 2.16. I'm going to back up, hit a few things in relation to Romans 12, uh, uh, excuse me, Romans 2.12 again before we move forward. But I want to locate us within the general structure argument of what Paul is saying here. It's easy to get lost sometimes in all of the details. This section that we have here actually begins in verse 18, and it goes down through the end of chapter 3. That's just a couple of pages in most Bibles. It takes you down to the end of chapter uh, chapter 3 in verse are not quite to the end, down to about verse 20. And then the subject shifts again. But in that section, what Paul is driving toward is establishing an argument, establishing his position that mankind, humanity, no one in the human race can measure up to God's standard of absolute righteousness. Even though many people think that they can. They have a high view of themselves, and in many cases they are quite accomplished. It seems to, it's always easier to uh, convince people of their need of salvation if they have a trend towards immorality than if they have a trend towards morality. Because if they're accomplished, if they're productive, if they are uh, very upright moral uh, contributors to our society, then they have done a lot, and it's easy to become very convinced, uh, very proud of what we have done, and to think that we have uh, done quite well, because when we compare 
our accomplishments to those around us that we uh, far exceed what most people have done. And that not only happens to people who are not Christians, but it also happens to many Christians. And it's the essence of self-reliance and self-righteousness, thinking that we're really better than the next person, that, that look at what I've done. And we think about it in very subtle ways. We uh, think too highly of ourselves. And so in these verses, in this section, Paul is making the point, he's very logically laying out a case for the fact that no one measures up. No one measures up as well as they think they do. And when we use as our ultimate standard the behavior of other human beings, well, that's a pretty low standard, all things considered. It's pretty easy to outdistance most people in the human race, especially if you have been born in a country like the United States of America and you've had a lot of opportunities and you've done well. It's easy to look around and think that you're doing better than most people. But when we measure ourselves not against the standard, the relative standard of what other people accomplish, but when we measure ourselves against the absolute standard of God, which is moral perfection, then no one measures up. When you go back to the Old Testament, you look at the Torah, you look at what's laid out under the Levitical offerings, it only took one minor unintentional violation of the law and you couldn't enter into the presence of God in worship in the temple unless there was a blood sacrifice. Now, it could be something as unintentional as touching a dead body. Someone in your house died, a loved one, and in a natural reaction, you've hugged them, touched them, moved the body, however you were involved in the process, and you become spiritually, or excuse me, ritually unclean. And in order to enter into the uh, tabernacle, in order to enter into the temple, there had to be a blood sacrifice and cleansing, otherwise you couldn't get in. Again and again and again, if you read through the Torah, you realize that almost anything a, anything a Jewish person did on a day-to-day basis would r- bring them in contact with something that would render them ritually unclean. In fact, if you read through all of the 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law, you come to realize that it would be pretty difficult to just go 24 hours without violating one of them, especially if you focus on some of the mental attitude aspects, of, such as not coveting what your neighbor has. Uh, this is the uh, tenth commandment, which is the one that tripped up the Apostle Paul, when he finally realized that no matter how much he had accomplished in terms of checking off all the uh, pharisaical to-do list, he still failed when he came to mental attitude sins. And when you go back into the Old Testament and you realize that God uh, condemned Mental attitude sins more than any others, not in an absolute sense, but in a relative sense, because it's out of the mind, out of the these mental attitude sins that overt sins and sins of the tongue develop. And so it's the mental attitude sins that are the worst sins. But if you talk to a lot of people, 
And I've run into folks like this, and every now and then it's it's easy to sort of make fun and laugh at them because they seem to be so superficial, but they just have a list of five or six or seven sins, and if they don't do those, then they, they don't sin. But yet when you look and are honest with what Scripture says and look at what sin is, anything, any thought, word, or deed that violates the character of God, it's hard to hard to not sin. Just as under the Mosaic law, it was hard to not violate the law. It was hard to stay ritually clean. And that was the whole point of the law, was to teach that no one could do it. No one could stay ritually pure. It was just about impossible. And so what Paul needs to do here and what he accomplishes in these two chapters is to logically work his way through the the fact that every human being needs to have God's righteousness given to him because none of us can make it on our own. So in terms of the way he structures this, beginning in verse 18, he lays down the principle that that God has revealed himself to man in a very simple picture book way. Uh, most of us can remember back when we were kids or you have kids or you have nieces or nephew or you watch little kids as they begin to to grow and they watch television and they are captured by those images. In fact, one of the flaws in our culture today is we've become image focused instead of word focused and so it's leading to a breakdown in the intellectual capacity of western civilization but because it goes back to a very early infantile approach to learning but you look at a small child and he becomes captivated by images and he learns stories and looks at picture books doesn't know a thing about reading the words but he can pick his way through a story just by looking at those at those images. And so God gives a very simple basic image. It's just creation. You go outside, you look up at the stars. You take a look at uh, various plants. You come to understand uh, basic principles of agriculture and the cycles of the seasons as you go from fall to winter, then spring and summer. And you don't see it so much here in Houston, but some of you I know have lived up in uh, areas north of the Mason-Dixon line. And I remember when we first moved up to Connecticut a number of years ago, it was just amazing after the second year realizing that every year, like clockwork, you could almost set your calendar by it. The first week of May, the little green shoots would begin to come out on most of the trees. A week later, most of the trees had fully developed their leaves and other uh flowers would begin to come out. And every week or two, another set of flowering plants would begin to bloom. And it did that all the way through the summer, all the way up until the first leaves began to change uh, sometime around the end of August and the first of September. But you could set your calendar by it. It It was a clock that's embedded within nature. Now, down here in Houston, where we have one and a half seasons, and this year we've had one season, you know, hot and humid from the end of January until hopefully that'll end by September, but we don't see it that in that remarkable a way. But up there you'll see at the beginning of the spring the forsythia blooms, bright, garish, yellow. It's like 
Gabriel's trumpet announcing the beginning of spring. And then about a week later, the daffodils begin to uh, come up. And then uh, it's not long before the rhododendrons and the uh, uh, er other things begin to uh, um, bloom. And it's just remarkable. Every year, just you can set your calendar by it. And that's embedded within nature. There is an order and a structure to nature. It just didn't happen by chance. Chance can't produce order and structure. It, it's just it, mathematically, logically impossible for that to take place. So Paul argues that God's nature is so embedded in every molecule, every cell, every atom, every aspect of his creation, that when we look at his creation, it announces to something that God built into the human soul that God exists. And yet because of a rejection of God, there is a process where man suppresses that truth. I don't need God. I don't want God. And we go in one of two directions, and sometimes we bounce back and forth between them like a ping-pong ball, but we either go in the direction of, of immorality, which is what Paul describes from chapter 1, 24 down to 30, 32, or we go in the direction of morality. We either fall completely apart and reject any sense of absolutes, or we try to generate us, uh, uh, our own sense of order and absolutes so that we can somehow earn our way into the presence of God. And that's the thrust that comes out in the second chapter from chapter, uh, in chapter two, uh, verse one down through, down through verse, uh, five, we saw that there's the second description there of the results of suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, verse from 118. And this is suppression that leads in the direction of uh, morality and religious practice and, and works. But nevertheless, as Paul concludes in verse 5, we are still storing up wrath that is judgment from God and that we will experience that during our lives. Then, starting in verse 6, there's a thought shift, as I pointed out last time and the time before, that verse 6 is not a relative clause. It should begin with a uh, a pronoun. Uh, He who will render according to each one, uh, he will render to each one according to his deeds. And then we have a general principle laid down those next two or three verses that God's basis for judgment is works. Now, if you come at this from the New Testament and passages I cited last time that were not saved by works of righteousness, but were saved by his grace, you read this and you think, well, something's wrong here. But there's not anything wrong here, as I pointed out last time, that according to Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment, the basis for judgment is going to be works. Now, a person's name is either going to be written in the book of life because he has trusted in Jesus, who is the giver of eternal life, or we're going to rely on our own efforts and our own works. And God is going to have a a ledger brought forward that's going to list all of our works. Now, this doesn't necessarily include sin. Sin was paid for at the cross. This includes good things, bad things we do. The issue is how high can it pile up? You're going to have negatives and you're going to have pluses. You're going to have assets and liabilities. 
And the issue is, does it, when you pile it all up, is it going to reach the mark that God set, which is his own righteousness? And it, it doesn't. And anyone who fails to measure up to God's righteousness is going to end up in eternal condemnation. This is set up again and again through Scripture. So I developed this chart that God's standard is absolute righteousness. That is so far beyond anything that we can even imagine. And the best that we can do is maybe by all of our strength and all of our effort get about three feet off the ground, and we need to probably get about three trillion miles off the ground before we can even spot that standard off in the distance somewhere. The Old Testament Hebrew scriptures confirm this again and again, that all of our works of righteousness are filthy rags. You add it all up, Isaiah says, the best that we have is rejected by God because it's all stained and it's all negated by the sin that's in our life. The only hope is that we get righteousness from something else. This is the whole doctrine of the imputation of righteousness. So in this chart, we have the perfect righteousness of God and his justice. Both of these concepts come out of the same word group, whether it's it's setic in the Old Testament or dikaios in the New Testament. I'm using the nouns, justice and righteousness. However you look at these, one expresses, one way that word is used expresses the standard of God's righteousness, his perfection, and the other his application. And God's going to evaluate everybody on the standard of his own perfect righteousness. And because God's omniscient, he knows everything, he's going to be able to perfectly and without flaw measure and evaluate every person's life. Well, we can't measure up because we lack righteousness where minus R. But at the cross, there's a transaction. There's Jesus who is perfectly righteous, and he is going to take our place. This was the prediction from Isaiah as well in Isaiah 53 that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but he, meaning God, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so our righteous fail, our lack of righteousness, our sins are all imputed to Christ on the cross. And when we believe in him, his righteousness is then given to us. It's a free gift. And you wouldn't be far off if you were to take the book of Romans and say the book of Romans is all about learning how God gives righteousness to mankind. It can't be earned. It can only be accepted. Now, a great measure of your understanding of what it means to accept righteousness and understand grace is how well you can accept or receive a free gift. So I get older, the more I grow and the more I'm around people, uh, it's interesting. Some people have no trouble accepting a free gift. Other people, you can't give them anything because they want to give you something back. That's not grace orientation. Grace orientation is understanding that 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 we don't deserve anything. God gives it to us, and we can't do anything to earn it or to deserve it. And so we're given that righteousness so that God's 
righteous or God's justice in heaven declares us to be righteous. And because he's looking at the righteousness we possess from Christ, he's free to bless us with salvation. Now, last time, as I came to the end of this last time, I skipped the next slide, but I wanted to raise a question here. Because the point that I'm making is that at the great white throne judgment, we are not, our unbelievers rather, are not judged for sin. Sin was judged at the cross. Colossians 2.14, our certificate of debt, that, that, that handwritten, which was written against us, is wiped out when it was nailed to the cross. That happened historically in A.D. 33. So you, the people are not sent to the lake of fire for their sin. What are they sent there for? Now, this is really important. It's going to tie, if I get through everything I want to cover in Romans tonight, it'll tie everything together. But a question arises every now and then, well, what about these statements that a person dies in their sin? So I want to answer that question. This is very important. So let's just just hold your place here. Turn back a couple of books. Let's run past Acts, and we'll end up in the Gospel of John. And John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 24, we see our first occurrence of this phrase, in your sin. Jesus has been teaching in the temple, and he's been in another conflict with the Pharisees, which was described in verses 13 down through 20. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, so that them is the Pharisees, and he's continuing the discussion. He says, I'm going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin." Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, now John is not using the term the Jews in a pejorative manner. He's, he's not anti-Semitic. He's Jewish. He's using that. This is this was used by John, by other writers in the New Testament, and, and others outside of the New Testament to simply refer to the Jewish leadership. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself? See, they're, they're having this debate back there among themselves. Is he going to kill himself when he says, where I go, you cannot come? And so Jesus, who picks up on what they're muttering, says in verse 23, you are from beneath, I am from above. He's talking about source. They are earthbound. They're creatures. He is from heaven. He's making another claim of deity here. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Hmm. I thought you said Jesus was going to pay the penalty for sins. Yes, there's a difference between dying for your sins and dying in your sins. What does this phrase, in your sin, mean? Well, next place that we have it, I have up on the screen is in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. There Paul says, if Christ is not risen, now he's talking to believers, but 
the Corinthians who had trusted in Jesus as their Savior, but now they're saying, well, we're not sure we believe in the resurrection anymore. That just sort of stretches credulity. It's beyond our experience. Is it really necessary that there's a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus? And Paul says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. See, there it's not talking, it's talking about something positional. But this phrase, in your sins, is not clarified yet. It becomes clarified in Ephesians 2.1. So turn back with me to Ephesians, a little sword drill time so you learn where the books of the Bible are. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Now Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, actually expresses a number of dependent clauses. The main clause is found in verse 4, God... And then is the subject, and then verse 5 gives us the verb, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places. Now, before he gets to what God did, he has to create this, this contrast so that we can understand how great it is that God did this. And so he begins with a number of different subordinate clauses in verse 1. He says, and you, and if you have a new King James, you'll see that he made alive is in italics because it's not there in the original. That's because the translators went down to verse uh, 6, or excuse me, verse 5, where it says he made us alive together, and he pull, they pulled that out so that they could put it up at the beginning of verse 1, so that English readers could make some sense of this by having the main verb at the beginning. I don't know if you've ever taken German. What always frustrated me in reading and speaking German was you don't get to the verb until you get to the end of the sentence. And if somebody has a long sentence, you're kind of left there hanging as to what the action is until the sentence is over. And if you're an English speaker, you put the action up front, and so that's one of the learning uh, blockade you have to get past in order to uh, think like a German and speak like a German. So all Paul is saying at the beginning is, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, what does that mean? What does Paul mean when he says, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins? Now, if you take out the word trespasses and just say, you who were dead in your sins, you'll have the same phrase you had over in John 8, 24 and 1 Corinthians 15, 17. You were dead in your sins. It is a an idiom for spiritual death. To be dead in your sins means that you're spiritually dead in every one of these places. That's how it's understood here in, in um, Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's not saying you're going to die for your sins, which is how some people think things will turn out at the, at the great white throne judgment. It says you were past tense, or, or actually it's a, a present participle, but it has a past sense to it. You being dead 
previous to being made alive, you being dead in your trespasses and sins. So it refers to a state. It doesn't refer to a cause of punishment. So dead in your sins doesn't mean dying for your sins eternally because of what happens at the great white throne judgment. It refers to a state of being spiritually dead. So if we go back to John 8.24, what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, if you don't trust in me, you will die in your sins. You will continue to be spiritually dead. If you look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.7, if Christ isn't risen, your faith is futile because you're still spiritually dead. You see, there are three basic problems that have to be resolved before anybody can get into heaven. We went over this the other night. The first problem is that the legal penalty assigned by the Supreme Court of Heaven for sin has to be paid for. And that legal penalty is spiritual death. Now, that penalty was assigned by God to Adam the instant he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He died spiritually. As a result of his spiritual death, his new position, his new condition, every human being that's been born since then, with the exception of Jesus because of the virgin birth, every human being that's been born since then has been born spiritually dead. The So the first problem that we've got is the problem of the legal penalty in and of itself. The second problem that we've got is that we're born spiritually dead. There has to be a change. before, Even if the penalty is paid, the, the reality of our spiritual death has to be changed. And the third problem is that we lack righteousness. And that has to be changed. We have to change from minus R to plus R which we just understood the dynamics of that by looking at the imputation of righteousness. So the problem of our lack of righteousness is resolved by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and the problem of our spiritual death being in our sin, spiritually dead in our sin, is resolved by Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, dead in sin, Christ made, God made us alive together with Christ. It's regeneration. So the three problems are solved by three acts of God. The first act that solves the sin penalty problem is Jesus pays the penalty. The second problem which is our condition of spiritual death is resolved only when we believe in Christ, and then Titus three five uh, kicks in. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. How through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, God changes us. We become a new creature in Christ. So we have, and then the. Third problem is our justification, Galatians 2.16, that we're justified by faith in Christ, but not by the works of the law, because you know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might not be justified by faith in Christ 
that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. This is his conclusion. This is what Paul's driving to. And in Romans 3.28, he'll say, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It's never understood to be that way. So last time, we went from there into Romans 12. And I looked at, I mean, Romans 2.12. And I looked at Romans 2.12 to 16 and uh, went through that fairly fast. I'm going to come back, hit it again. And what we see here is that in the first part of this chapter in 2 1 through 5 I'm in the wrong book let me get back to Romans in 2 1 through 5 we see that the moral person the, the person who is righteous in his own eyes is not righteous all the time even in his own eyes and that there are times when he does exactly what he condemns other people of doing and shows that even in his own eyes, he knows he can't measure up even to his own standard. Now, in those verses that we looked at the last time, in 2.6 down to 12, Paul isn't saying that people actually get saved because they can completely and perfectly obey the word. It's that God will render you according to your works, and no one measures up. So theoretically, if you were perfect... You could get into heaven without believing in Jesus. But the standard is absolute perfection. One little mistake, one little unintentional sin, and that's it. You're just, you, you can't ever, you can't recover. You have to have somebody else. So, then he comes to his, his main point there in verses uh, 6 to 11 has to do with that future judgment seat of Christ. And in verse 12, he comes back and he talks about, begins to shift from talking about the human race in general, which would include primary, which would focus primarily on non-Jews, on Gentiles, and now he shifts to talk about Jews because Jews had a privileged position. That's what Paul says when he gets into Romans 9, verse 4, that to the Jewish people belong the promises and the covenants. And the scriptures, God has revealed himself and given them this privileged position of being the custodians of scripture. So they are in a privileged position, but it's a privilege that is not going to get them saved. It is a privilege of knowledge, but not a privilege of salvation. Just because they are born as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doesn't mean that they are automatically saved. It means they have easier access to special revelation and that they've been given special revelation that no one else has. So they're in a privileged position. And that special revelation, the foundation of it for the Old Testament, was called in Hebrew the Torah. Torah sometimes is translated law. Sometimes it has the idea of instruction. And if we think of the Mosaic law, the Torah as instruction on how the people of God are to live to reflect God's character because he said to them, be holy as I am holy, then we get another slant on the Mosaic law. It was designed to teach them how and instruct them as to how to live. But what happened, happens with the Jewish people. It happens with a lot of Christians. I remember my first congregation. Fortunately, you all didn't know me then. My first congregation, I was learning. 
I was at least humble enough to recognize that when you're 29 years old and the mean age of the congregation is 55, that you have to be a little careful what you do because it's very easy to uh, uh, upset everybody by doing anything new. But you're going to do, as a young pastor, if there are any young pastors listening to this, you don't have to worry about making a conscientious decision to do something new that upsets everybody. You'll make an unconscious decision, and it will be new, and you will upset everybody. So you don't have to go out and try to uh, decide how you're going to change the church or improve everything. You just have to go through your normal activity. In three or four weeks, you're going to say something from the pulpit that's different from anything they've ever heard, and you're going to have a hornet's nest in front of you. And the statement that I made was that the Ten Commandments wasn't for today. The Ten Commandments never had anything to do with salvation. The Ten Commandments was actually to show people that they couldn't be saved. Now, I know the pastor, because the pastor who had pastored that church for 40 years still sat in the pew, second row back on my left. And he knew that I was right, but he didn't really teach him real well. He was more of an evangelist. He'd graduated from Moody about 1932, and he was a a good man and a nice man and a kind man, but he wasn't a a real in-depth Bible teacher. And those people just freaked out. What do you mean the ten... Ten Commandments aren't for today. What do you mean the Ten Commandments aren't going to get us get, get people into heaven? I said, well, what are you going to do from Adam to, to Moses? If the, Mos- if, if, if the Ten Commandments had anything to do with salvation, then you've got hundreds of thousands of people who didn't have access to the Ten Commandments. Well, that kept him quiet for a little bit. Not long, but a little bit. So that was always a lot of fun. You never know what you're going to say that people are going to hear differently. Even if they've heard it, the same thing said a different way for years and years and years, you're going to say it in a way that's a little bit different, and they're going to think you're wrong because you didn't say the same words with the same pattern and the same rhythm that somebody else did. So Paul says here in Romans 2.12, For as many as have sinned without law, shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. And so he's drawing a contrast here between Gentiles who did not have the Torah and Jews who did have the Torah. But both of them get judged. Now, first thing we ought to note is that it starts off with this word for in the English, or gar in the Greek, which means now he's explaining something. He's developing out what he has already said, and he's going to explain why there's no partiality with God. It's that all are guilty. Well, he starts off, he says, as many as have sinned without law and as many as sinned in the law. And this it's a funny phrase, and some of the um, some of the grammars... I mean, some of the uh, commentaries uh, have a little trouble with it because it's the phrase in law, and so they're, they're a little concerned as to exactly what that might mean. But if you just look at the context, you have those without law and those in the law. It's real clear it's a contrast, those without law and those with the law. It's in, the Greek preposition in, which can be translated with. So it's talking about Gentiles who don't have the law, obviously the law of Moses, and Jews who do have the law, those without the law, 
those who are with the law. Now he says, as many as have sinned, and this is an aorist active indicative of the Greek verb hamartano, which means to miss the mark. See, missing the mark means you fall short of that high standard of God. You shoot your arrow at the target and it goes wide to the left or wide to the right or short, you've missed the mark. Even if you're just outside the bullseye, you've missed the mark. You just haven't made it. So that's what sin means. Now, the way it's expressed is in a past tense, both here and in the second clause, as many as have sinned without the law and as many as have sinned in the law. And in the, in the Greek language, you had an idiomatic use of the aorist tense, which is a past tense, where you're presenting a timeless truth. So it's really should be understood as a present reality. As many as, as many as sin without law, it's stating a principle. Whoever sins without law shall perish without law, and whoever sins in the law or with the law shall be judged by the law. Now that word law, without the law, is the Greek word onomos, which means no law, lawless, outside the sphere of law. So the first category are Gentiles who don't have the instruction from God, and the second category are the Jewish people who do have instruction from God. Now, the first group is going to perish. And the, ver- the word there, the noun there is apolumi. Same word that's used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Apolumi. Most of the time, this refers to eternal Judgment. And then in the second part of the verse, it says, those who sin with the law shall be judged by the law. This brings in the verb krino. And krino, which means to separate, discern, judge, consider, decide, is also translated a number of places, condemn, as it is, in John 3:17 and 18. Now think about this. I just quoted John 3:16 to you. Most of you know it. Those who don't believe in Jesus will perish. And then in the next verse, John writes, "For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Con- condemnation, crino, judgment has to do with the supreme court of, of God and the decision He makes, so that those who are without righteousness." will perish. So condemnation relates to the Supreme Court of Heaven's decision, the verdict and the penalty, and then perishing is the is the penalty itself. So God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That is the purpose of the first advent wasn't judgment, it was deliverance. Jesus didn't come to judge the world, that comes at the second coming. He came to provide deliverance. John 3.18 reads, He who believes in him is not condemned. That's Crino again. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. That's a problem. We stand under God's judgment, and we're born in condemnation, and something has to adjust us so that we're properly related to the judgment of God, and we can't do it on our own. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I don't care how patriotic a Texan you are. Now in verse 13, 
Paul then says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Now, when he says this, note he says the hearers of the law. We would say the readers of the law, because most people in our culture are reading their Bible, not hearing their Bible. But in that culture, people didn't have their own copy of the Scriptures. They would go to the synagogue, and they would hear the Torah read to them. So they were hearers of the law. They weren't readers of the law as much. They could read it. They just weren't. They didn't have their own copy at home. For not the hearers of the law are just before God. And what what Paul is saying here is the same thing Peter says, I mean, uh, James says over in James 2. It's not just enough to come in the back door, go through the external ritual of going to church or synagogue or Bible class and sit there and be exposed to the teaching of the word. There is a spiritual imperative that comes with the word. And that is to put it into practice. Now, what we see here, as in James, is the use of the phrase poieo, to be a doer of the law, but that just means to be an applier of what you hear. Don't lie. So you're going to go out, and you're not going to lie. Don't bear false witness. So you're going to go out, and you're not going to bear false witness. Uh, Don't have any other gods before me. So you go out, and you don't succumb to idolatry. That's, that's what it means to be a doer of the law. You apply what you hear. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the appliers, those who apply the law, shall be justified. Wow, it looks like Paul's saying you can get there by applying the law. Well, if you read the whole thing, he ends up saying, well, nobody really does it. They're not able to. And the word here translated just in the first line is the noun dikaios, which means just or righteous. And the second line, you have the verb dikaio, which means to be justified or declared justified, which is a forensic or judicial statement that comes from the bench. But a great example of this, sadly so, in our culture, we just finished watching to our much, uh, our, to our enthusiasm, weeks and weeks and weeks of testimony in this Casey Anthony trial in Florida. And the jury came back with a not guilty verdict. Now, I don't know about you, but I think she's guilty of sin. But that's just my personal opinion. But let's assume that she's, for the sake of argument, that she's guilty of sin. Judicially, she's not. Judicially, she is not guilty. I didn't say she was innocent. I said she was not guilty. They didn't make their case, according to most people on the jury. I mean, they came back fast. I mean, they sat there through all the testimony. So they uh, <clears throat> they heard it all. And they came back very fast, in my opinion, and with the not guilty verdict. And that's unanimous. So obviously, they didn't hear things that they thought they should hear to demonstrate her guilt. So they rendered a verdict, not guilty. Now, something a little bit different happens when you and I stand before the bar of God's justice. He says we are righteous. He doesn't just declare us not guilty. He declares us righteous. It's a judicial decision. Are we righteous? No. He's not saying we're moral. 
He doesn't infuse, that's the Roman Catholic idea, he doesn't infuse us with righteousness. He doesn't change us internally so that from now on we are less sinful or have a less uh, or lower capacity for sin. That's also the lordship salvation view. He simply exclusively declares us to be righteous. Does that mean he overlooks sin and, and there's no consequences or judgment? No. It means that in terms of our eternal destiny, though, we have accepted on our behalf the penalty that he paid, and so we have accepted that free gift. And that makes all the difference in the world. Now, in verse 4, for verse, uh, uh, let's go on 214. 2.14, for when the Gentiles, he goes on to explain, another guard there, another four at the beginning, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, that is, they weren't given the Mosaic law, they don't have that special revelation from God, do by nature, that is, by nature means do in light of how God made them. Do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves. And that's not quite right. Law unto themselves has the idea almost in our culture of being, you're going you're to write your own law, you're going to be a, a more relativist, and you're going to make your own standards. That's not really what that says. They have, it's really the idea they have their own law. And that law is this internal sense of right and wrong, which God embeds in every creature who's in his image. And everybody on the planet has a sense of right and wrong. Now, their standards may get screwed up. Some people may think that murder's not not wrong. Other people may think that uh, physically beating your wife is not wrong. Other people may think that that uh, thievery, at least at a lower level, isn't wrong. But at some level, they know something is wrong and some things are right because they use those little subjunctive words ought and should all the time. And that indicates that they have a sense that some things ought to be a certain way or should be a certain way, which means there's an absolute standard. They can't escape it. Anytime you use the word, you, you watch a TV sometime, and you watch some politician. I don't care if you're a Democrat, independent, Republican. You're going to watch a politician and say, boy, it just shouldn't be like that. Oops, you've just opted out of moral relativism. Because you've just made a statement showing that the very core of your person, you believe that there are moral absolutes that people must adhere to. And it's not optional. So Gentiles who don't have the revelation of God in the Torah uh, do by nature the things that are contained in the law. They're, without the law, Gentile nations, tribes, people have standards that imitate the word of God. They know it's wrong to commit murder. That doesn't mean every culture does. I pointed out last time that the Saudi people in Papua New Guinea uh, don't think it's wrong to uh, deceive somebody to the point that he loses his life. That's part of their culture. It's a distorted part. But they have other aspects of their culture which would mirror or imitate some aspects of of the Torah. So every Gentile culture is going to have certain aspects in the culture that reflect the Torah. They're going to believe it's wrong to bear false witness or it's wrong to commit adultery or it's wrong to 
uh, to lie or whatever it may be. There's something there that's wrong. They're going to honor their parents, things of that nature. So what Paul is saying here is when the Gentiles have a sense of what right and wrong is, not having the law, then they have their own law. They do have a standard which shows the work of the law written in their hearts. Now, this is an interesting little phrase here, written in their hearts. You may run across people now and then who try to connect this back to Jeremiah chapter uh, 31, uh, verses 33 and following. That's where the new covenant is stated in the uh, in the Old Testament. And in Jeremiah chapter 33, we have this, this statement, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And if you just had that verse and just, you know, just surgically removed it from its context, you would think that possibly this is what Paul says. And there's some people who do that. But if you go on to read the next verse in Jeremiah, part of the result of writing God's law on their hearts at the time the new covenant is established with Judah and Israel, the result will be no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. So the consequences of that type of writing on the heart is not the same as what Paul's talking about here. What Paul's talking about here is a knowledge, an internal knowledge within the structure of our soul, the conscience, where norms and standards are, that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. And what we see in verse 15 is that when we don't do what we know we should do or we do what we know we shouldn't do, then the conscience and the heart, the mentality of our soul are going to go to war. And the conscience is going to say, don't do that. And the mind is going to say, yeah, yes, I am. And there's going to be this conflict, this war that sets up, and they will fight with one another. And that is evidence that even the pagan Gentiles have the law of God, have a sense of right and wrong, and that gives evidence that they're under condemnation. And so there will be judgment. In verse 16, Paul says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. That's the great white throne judgment. Now, in verse 17, he shifts to talk about the Jewish claim of fulfilling the Mosaic law. And in verse 17, down through the end of the chapter, down to verse 25, rather, down to the end of verse 25, He's going to lay out this argument that the Jewish people can't claim their relationship to Abraham or their relationship to Moses and the law as a basis for getting into heaven. They have favor from God, yes, in many ways, but it wasn't a favor that automatically got them into heaven. They're not born with their ticket punched. They have to make a decision like everybody else as to whether or not to trust God. This is what happened with Abraham. In the first book of the Torah, in Genesis 12, 15, excuse me, in Genesis 15, uh, 6, God said, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's Abraham's faith in God that gave him righteousness. He didn't have to work his way there. He just believed God, and God declared him to be righteous. 
That's the pattern for all his descendants to follow. From all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in Romans 2.17, Paul says, Indeed, you're called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and you make your boast in God. Now in the subsequent verses, from verse 17 down to verse 23, he's going to describe what that means. We don't need to spend a whole lot of time there. It's pretty easy to understand these different categories. He says, first of all, uh, first characteristic is you rest or relax on the law. You think that just because you have the law means your ticket's punched and you're going to go to heaven. Second, you boast in God because God has a special relationship with Israel. That means you're in. Third, you know his will. This is in verse 18. You know his will, and next you approve the superior things, the excellent things. Why? Because you've got revelation, and revelation gives you the information you need to be able to decide, but not just between the good and the bad, but between the best and the good. So you can approve the things that are excellent. And then he says, because it should be translated as a causal participle there. It's not just being instructed. It's because you've been instructed out of the law. And the Greek word there is katekeo, where we get our word catechism. That implies a line-by-line, precept-upon-precept, Isaiah 28, 16 and following. Line-upon-line, precept-in-precept. You have been drilled on the precepts of the law. So that's why you can understand things that are excellent. And fifth, you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. And this is then expanded to mean you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. See, in Isaiah, Isaiah said that that the Jews were to be a light to the nations. They were to be a guide to those who were in darkness, but they they failed to do that. So they are to be a, he's, Paul says you, you think that you are a guide to the blind. Everything after that down through verse 21 expands on that idea. You think you're a guide to the blind, which means a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, a, 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 a tutor to teach infants because you have the categories or the structure of knowledge from the Torah. Just because you have that, you think you can teach everybody because you have this structure of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore, you therefore who teach another, don't you teach yourself? Don't you, in other words, are you practicing? Very simple here. Are you practicing what you're preaching? Are you doing what you say you do? do and he says, first of all, he says, don't, do, the law says, or you say, he says, you, you who say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? It's interesting. The Talmud says that in the first century, adultery was like a, uh, oh, I shouldn't say this, but it's a contact sport in, Judea, in, in the Jewish culture in the first century. It was rampant. And it wasn't just a category of, of, of lust. It was like everybody was keeping score to see who could have the most adulterous affairs. And so Paul is, is right within his time period when he says 
you say don't commit adultery, yet you commit adultery. You who abhor idols, are you robbing temples? You know, on the Sabbath, you're one way, and the rest of the week, not so much. Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? A lot of different ways, loopholes they would develop, so they did really have to fulfill the law. Come back, I'll give you a couple of examples next time. And then verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. And this is a uh, reference to the uh, quote from the Old Testament and a number of different passages reflects this idea, Second Samuel 12.14, Isaiah 52.5, other passages. Now, what are the other arguments that they use? Well, we'll get into that next time in verse 25 as they looked at ritual as a way to get them past disobedience. If they had the right ritual, the right external observance, then what was going on on the inside didn't matter. But see, what Paul is pointing out is what's on the outside is not relevant. What's relevant is what's going on on the inside. And if we're disobeying God, then you violate the law. You're just not qualified. None of us are qualified. We have a need. That's the argument here. Everybody needs righteousness. Nobody can manufacture it on their own. But our hope is in Jesus Christ because he is the way, the only way, and he provides that righteousness for us. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon your grace, reflect upon the fact that we are in absolute total need, incapable of doing anything to pull ourselves up to the level that you require. But you and your love provided a way that we could get there by being lifted up by somebody else's work and that it's a free gift and that that free gift is available to everyone. doesn't matter what our background is or what our failures are. Everyone is equally a failure, so everyone is equally equally available to, the, to your grace, and everyone can believe, and that's all that's required is trusting in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us think through what we've learned today and that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.